0: Hello and welcome to the American Cinema Foundation Movie Podcast. Today I'm joined again by professor and pop culture critic extraordinaire Paul Cantor for a wide-ranging discussion of literature and movies. We're talking about alien invasions, starting from Herbert George Wells' War of the Worlds, and then going through radio and movies and TV to our own times to think about aliens, who is alien to us, and therefore who are we? In relation to aliens how do we understand ourselves through our fears why this kind of movie making is proliferating and what politically it can help us understand sir thank you very much for joining me for suggesting the subject you have written about this in a number of places over the years It's a very rich subject that I think will get a really good introduction here as a podcast and we'll try to link to books and articles so that people who are interested in thinking about the stuff that you have noticed and that you bring out will have a chance to keep going, to figure these things out. Thanks for joining me, sir.
1: It's my pleasure as always, and uh, last time we talked about Mary Shelley and Frankenstein and the amazing fact that Mary Shelley created a myth for the modern world, the story of Dr. Frankenstein and the creature he creates and we saw how much resonance that story has had over the centuries, just reaching its 200th anniversary. We traced the way the Frankenstein story works its way through popular culture from generation to generation in plays, movies, and television. It's a really remarkable story. And one of the few parallels I can think of is the great H.G. Wells the man who invented science fiction and came up with virtually every science fiction plot in the course of his lifetime. In particular, he started out with an amazing series of what he called scientific romances, The Time Machine, The Invisible Man, The Island of Dr. Moreau, and The War of the Worlds. And I can't even count how many movies have been based on those four books over the years. It's probably reached over a 100 by now. The most prolific of them is The War of the Worlds. So that's what I'd like to begin by talking about. It's amazing to think of it, but Wells was the first person to think of the motif of the alien invasion, and specifically a military invasion. There had been people imagining intelligent creatures on other planets as far back as Giordano Bruno in the Renaissance, and Voltaire actually wrote a kind of philosophic piece of fiction that imagines aliens coming to the uh, Earth. But really, Wells was the first to come up with an account that has military detail, that has the of reality to it. And what we're going to see in all these cases is that these visions of alien invasion of War of the Worlds are rooted in some kind of reality. And in Wells's case, this is 1898 when War of the Worlds came out, it reflected deep anxieties in Britain about its vulnerability to foreign inv- invasion. There was, in fact, a genre at the time called the invasion novel which chiefly imagined German armies evading an unsuspecting and complacent Britain. First one comes as early as 1871. It's called the Battle of Dorking, which I hasten to point out is a place, not a verb, by a man named George Chesney. And it imagines a highly professional, barbaric German army just wiping out a series of English uh, volunteers. 1871, that's one year after the German armies conquered France in two months. And it just came out of nowhere. France was thought to be the greatest land army in Europe, and here it was defeated so quickly by the Germans, and the British realized they had a new enemy. And the genre flourished all the way up to World War One. just one novel after another, imagining what would happen if Britain were invaded and specifically by uh, Germany. Probably the greatest of these novels is Erskine Childers' The Riddle of the Sands, 1903, I guess. It's a spy novel. It's really a really wonderful book, but that's, of course, after Wells. So anyway, he imagines in War of the Worlds, the Martians invading, and like the Germans, having technological superiority, superior weapons, better organization, better communication. That's what it shocked people about, how Germany was able to move a million troops very quickly from all over its country to attack the French border. The Martians just overrun the British in the novel. So one of the reasons the novel was so powerful is that it had this kind of realism to it. The other thing, though, and what's really more important is the way Wells drew upon the colonial experience of Britain. And for Wells, the novel became a way of teaching the British a lesson. How would you like it if somebody invaded you? His sense was the British had been invading countries in Asia and Africa for over a century, basically benefited from their military technological superiority, the superiority of their weapons, their guns, but also from their organizational abilities. Wells said that the novel germinated when he was having a conversation with his brother about Tasmania and the extermination of the Tasmanian native people. This was actually an early example of deliberate genocide that the Australian colonists set out to destroy the indigenous people of this island of Tasmania off the south coast of Australia. It was one of the more horrible episodes in the history of the British Empire, and it led Wells to think what would happen if, in this case, the Martians invaded the Earth and tried to wipe out the human race so that they could colonize our planet. In the story, Mars is dying, it's undergoing planetary changes that are making life difficult, if not impossible, so these Martians turned to Earth the way Europeans were turning to colonizable areas all over the globe in the 19th century. So it really has that twist. It's giving the British a taste of their own medicine, and that motif has come up again and again over the years in these stories. The other thing that I find particularly interesting about it is Wells' secret sympathy for the Martians. Now, Wells is a human being, he's writing for human beings, but he is impressed by the Martians. And again, it is from a scientific point of view, they have superior technology, they have a heat ray actually have poison gas. The novel is 1898. I was surprised to learn that poison gas was already an issue before World War I. It had actually been an international congress to ban it. I thought poison gas was invented during World War I, but no, it had been used in some circumstances, and Wells brings that up. Of course, another prophetic element of the book is 1898, no Wright brothers, no heavier than air flight, and yet Wells predicts that the new warfare will come from the air, from outer space, but even the Martian machines can fly the great claim of Britain was that it was technologically and scientifically superior to the rest of the world, and therefore had the right to rule foreign countries. And here the Martians show up, and Wells is very struck by their organizational abilities. And here I think the socialist in H.G. Wells comes into play. He was, in fact, the socialist, and became one of the great proponents of socialism in England in the 19th century. The Martians work as one. They have almost telepathic powers of communication. They've planned the whole invasion carefully, and they follow it out according to a strict plan. So it's Wells, as a socialist, admiring central planning. And the Martians are only defeated by a quirk of fate, namely. They have no immunity to germs on Earth, and that's what kills them. Wells is really struck by the futility of the responses of a free society like England. Government's response is rather feeble, the military response is feeble, and above all, Wells is struck by the way human beings panic. They can't organize themselves, and all sorts of rivalries break out. It really is a scene of panic among the English. And in particular, Wells despises any sort of improvised individual action. He's really upset that people show up with boats to try to rescue the English and let them evacuate London, and that they're charging money for the boats. That's presented as something horrible in the story. The capitalist response horrifies Wells, the socialist planning of the Martians he actually admires. Again, we're going to see that these stories are frameworks for expressing whole ideological views. And from the beginning, Wells really packs the story of this kind of thing. It is, in addition to being an alien invasion narrative, an early end-of-the-world-as-we-know-it story. It links up with things like our zombie stories today, and it's typical of a certain approach to these stories that show that when government breaks down, as happens when the Martians take London, People can't respond to it. There are just scenes of people running in all directions, not knowing what to do, trampling each other. Nobody thinks to help each other. Wells has a very dim view of humanity, and it comes up in the story. So actually, although I admire
0: it, technically, there's a lot of things in what expresses that I find rather upsetting to me and typical Wells. Yeah, and it takes some thinking to notice these things. The colonial criticism aspect comes out as a kind of moral to the fable right at the end of the novel, but it's quite subtle. You know, at the core, the story is indeed criticism of English society. English society looks terrible. At the end, in the moral part, you get to see a family reunited, the protagonist and his wife. You get to see a lot of thank God, thank goodness. But in fact, the whole story is a radical criticism of English society and of human arrangements from, as you put it, the point of view of science. Now, one thing that struck me is this portrayal from a certain philosophical distinction that is plausible for a Victorian gentleman, of course, of human misery. You see that faced with catastrophe, human beings cease to be moral, decent, law-abiding, they turn savage. Now, this was not unknown to ancient writing. To give just two examples, the apolitical Epicureans at their poetic best in the poem of Lucretius, De Rerum Natura, there is a portrayal of a plague there, just like in Thucydides, the founder of political history, or realism, or speeches about human events without recourse to piety. There too, you see the plague at Athens at the beginning of the Peloponnesian War, and how Athenians abandoned their gods, their piety, their burial rituals, there's nothing they won't betray by way of family or the sacred. And uh, so you see that the attack on political freedom from a philosophical point of view is not new. Both the political thinkers and the apolitical thinkers were very invested in this. It seems to be essential to the philosophical enterprise, actually. But there is something new in what Wells does that very well brings out the difference between modern philosophers and these ancient philosophers like Thucydides and Lucretius. And that's technology. Science now has arms. The philosophic poet or historian doesn't have to contemplate events or legends. He can come up with this fantasy that's quite plausible of militarized science wiping out non-military or non-rational human associations. And this combination of science and the military under the sign of Mars suggests that technology at its core is warlike. Now, we tend to think of it as a war against nature primarily. You have to fight cancer. That's an American thing to say and to think. War on cancer, yes. Or war on poverty, or war on disease, or indeed even the war on drugs is to some extent a war against nature. But there is a war on human nature as well, of course. And the scientific tyrannies of the 20th century were very, very good at that, and obliterated vast numbers of human beings, and enslaved vast numbers of human beings. But apparently, from the point of view of Wells, there's a lot to admire, as you pointed out about this stuff. And that is how practical, or as we would say, realistic this is. And that is the ambition of this kind of of fantasy. There's a lot in the characterization, for example, that criticizes British society. For a while, our protagonist is holed up with a preacher of a kind, a curate, yeah. who turns out to be hysterical and insane. And religion doesn't come across proper. Yes,
1: that's going to be a very important motif. The Wells novel is very anti-religious. He was himself an atheist, very much objected to the role of the church and the role of the church is going to be one of the differentiators as we go through these
0: stories. Yes, because this was the high tide of progress, the turn of the 19th century to the 20th, and of course before the horrors that technology would wreak in the world wars, up to the atomic bomb and the threat of nuclear warfare, back then progressives were still gung-ho on science not at all hippies let's say
1: yeah wells coined the term atomic bomb yes this is not well known but 1916 in one of his stories the world set free he used that phrase he didn't understand nuclear fission no one knew about it then he thought an atomic bomb would be dropping a blow to radium on people but it is significant how prophetic he was and indeed, War of the world's imagined scenes that were not seen on Earth until World War I. The mass use of poison gas, the mass panic in cities
0: when they're bombed. I give him a lot of credit. He had an amazing imagination. Yeah, and he dedicated it mostly to the cause of science and its enormous powers. And as I said, that's the difference between modern and ancient philosophers and also modern ancient poets. Modern poets, like the modern philosophers, are armed. They know what the power of science is and that if people can put their mind to it they can achieve terrorizing things and in a certain sense that makes it seem inevitable to bring out another point of the novel war of the worlds at the end of the story the british survive other governments send help after it's all over for reconstruction but the martian invasion isn't all bad because now man has the secret of flight And all sorts of technological advantages have been achieved by surviving this ordeal. You could say it's like an experiment gone wrong. Sure, some people die, but you learn something and it may be important. You get more power at the end of the day than you had at the beginning. That's a strange kind of optimism.
1: Uh, Yes, I mean, Wells' narrator is imagining we can now invade Venus. Yes. From what we've learned from the Martians. So indeed, there isn't a uh, moral repugnance about what the Martians have done. They start to imitate the Martians. They reverse engineer their weapons. So Wells doesn't see it as a moral issue, but as a mere issue of power. And indeed, you're absolutely right that what it shows in modernity, and this goes back to Bacon, science gives the modern state weapons of unimaginable power. And that's what makes it so strong now and makes it so difficult to rebel against it or even escape its authority. The book is just filled with imaginations. I mean, Wells imagined the tank as a story called the land ironclad, which would be the land battleships, in our words. He actually sued the British government for copyright and patent infringement. (laughs) Of course, he had no patent on it, but he did try to sue them that the idea of the tank
0: came from one of his stories. Well, still, writers have to be satisfied with their fame. The power and the money go elsewhere in our modern scientific technological societies.
1: Wells had an amazing amount of influence, so I just think mean, he also had an amazing amount of money, too. But, you know, in support of what you've been saying, Wells was very friendly with Stalin. I mean, as an indication of his power, he secured a personal interview with Stalin, after which he reported that Joseph Stalin was the most honest and candid man he'd ever met. That's a good estimate of Wells's judgment of human character, but, yeah. you know, he met Roosevelt. I mean, he was the kind of person where presidents, chairman of the Communist Party, whatever, they'd meet with him because he was so famous.
0: Yes, exactly. He was incredibly influential. One of the few really, really famous Englishmen for decades. The only writer of comparable influence was Kipling. He was not a futurist, of course. Now, another thing about Wills' novel. Here's a subtler sign of the effect of science and enlightenment on society. How do the people of Britain react to this horror during which they become sort of dehumanized, terrorized? They doubt providence and God's special love of England's green and pleasant land and all that. They make a museum. They put these aliens and their stuff in museums. There's no monument, there's nothing sacred. It's a museum. People go watch it. It's hilarious now that you think about it, but in a time when people were super earnest about this part of enlightenment, being part of a museum was at some level being incorporated in the official teaching of the state and of the nation on what is it that you need to know, what's worth considering.
1: Yes, specifically they dissect a Martian. You would think the moral issue is that the Martians treat human beings like specimens, and in fact The novel opens with a long, eloquent passage about the Martians have been studying human beings as if they were specimens, but human beings just turn around, put the Martian in formaldehyde, display the body in a museum. I wonder if Wells was thinking of the fact that the Australians displayed the last Tasmanian, some poor woman, the last one to die. She was displayed in a museum. We think of that as a very inhuman treatment. It's treating someone not like a human being, but like a specimen. And Earth people do that to the Martians at the end. That museum scene is very telling at the end of the novel.
0: Yeah, in some important respect, human beings already are Martians, and indeed it's hard to tell with Wells to what extent he's aware of the inhumanities he catalogues. Because some of them he seems to have believed in, as you pointed out, not infrequently his political judgment was nothing short of insane. Still, even if it's honesty rather than craft, it's very telling, and especially this early passage, the view from Mars, this is, of course, also a trope of scientific conversation. Well, if somebody from Mars were to show up, he would look at human beings objectively. He would not be biased in favor of mankind. This, again, is a kind of scientific-philosophic ambition, to speak objectively, to say what is, without any kind of partisanship or bias, conscious or unconscious.
1: If it's an inversion of Immanuel Kant... Wells wants to treat human beings as if they're means, not
0: ends. Yeah, that seems to be the danger. And in as much as you see this relationship of Martians who are super scientific to people who are just lucky from an evolutionary point of view that they have an immunity to the germs that the Martians don't, yeah. you get to see one of the problems with modern politics and modern science. There are two kinds of human beings. Some, like Wells, for example, are superior rationalists who are playing experiments, fictionally or in reality, on mankind, and the other people just have to suffer those experiments and are only sort of human, with the audience, in short.
1: Yes, you know, we won't talk much today about Island of Dr. Moreau, but that novel anticipates Nazi experiments on human beings, Dr. Josef Mengele, that sort of thing. It's just extraordinary how much Wells foresaw of that aspect. And by the way, speaking about evolution, Wells began as a high school biologist, Teacher. He had the good fortune to have studied with Thomas Henry Huxley, Darwin's uh... bulldog. Lawrence Bulldog, yes, he was his public relations man, and so in fact, Wells argues in the novel that Martians are simply human beings at a higher stage of evolution, and he makes that point quite explicit. He would actually made it in a scientific journal article he'd written earlier that, for example, over the centuries we would develop technology that would make our legs obsolete and would make all but a giant hand obsolete. And so he is literally thinking that the Martians are human beings just hundreds of thousands of years down the line of
0: evolution. Exactly. They have reduced the human body to this massive brain and great big eyes. That's theory or contemplation. Science is part of that. But as you put it, they also need a muscular arm because modern science is not contemplative. It is practical or applied. It is all about getting power and using it for stuff. And that's who they are. And they work 24 hours
1: a day, too. They don't sleep. Exactly. It's a view of hyper-industrialization. And they produce all this black smoke everywhere. It is, again, a kind of left-wing image now of capitalism. The Martians are the economic point of view taken to extreme. And of course, they're bloodsuckers. They feed off human blood. Exactly. Marx spoke of capitalists as vampires. Wells is working in that direction with it. It's an amazing li- amount of symbolism and metaphor in the work.
0: Really, is very well thought out, very uh, deeply thought out. Yeah, it's almost everything that would scare normal people. It presents everything that would appall somebody like Chesterton, for example. Tolkien's presentation of decent Englishmen as hobbits. Everything that would terrorize from a scientific, powerful, tyrannical point of view this sort of old-fashioned human beings with their pious restraints and their self-concern that blinds them to the skies and the threat from above. It's all arranged here, and indeed, it's as much capitalist as it is socialist. It is as much pro-science as it is pro-government, and all of these things afterwards have splintered. Nobody can hold all these ideas in the same conception anymore. But at some point, in high progressive England, this was possible. It's strange to think about, but it's also strange nowadays to think about the fact that You could put so much power and so much moral self-righteousness into the same head. But Wells certainly had it all. Yes, there's a
1: great contempt for the middle class in the work. The artilleryman's speech towards the end of the book when the narrator meets this character who thinks human beings are going to like being ruled by the Martians because the Martians are just going to be fattening them up to consume them, it's a kind of vision of the welfare state at that point that the Martian government will take care of people. They won't have to worry about anything anymore. And it's a long passage. It's almost Nietzschean in the way it presents
0: the last men,
1: as in the prologue to Zarathustra, kind of vision of the last man, that people just want to have quiet time and everything's insured. Their lives are taken care of it. This artilleryman man presents himself as the alternative. He's going to fight the Martians, but then it turns out to be all talk and no action. Really, the book is a libel on the human race, <laughs> to be honest. It's loathsome in many respects. Wells showed a, a terrible uh, love for tyrants. Now, he did oppose Hitler, but there's one awful moment in 1936 when he says, we could use some concentration camps here in England. Now, he did not know the depth of the horror of the German concentration camps at that point, but he did say that, and that's not something you want to have on your record, but it, he thought human beings were fools and they should be ruled by wise men like H.G. Wells.
0: Yeah, exactly. And I think there's a relationship between the love of tyrants and love of science fiction or fantasies about future power based in science. In a modern society, you can see that uh, somebody like Wells, and it's hard to imagine anybody more famous or influential than him, simply cannot be satisfied with that. And indeed, the imaginations that lead him to that fame as you said, depend on libeling the human race. It is necessary to believe that it's just not good enough being England and the height of its powers. that If you reach the peak of the British Empire, it's all a big disappointment. And you have to imagine these other far greater powers to give you any desire, to give you any appetite, to spur you to action.
1: Yeah, well, one of the things about Wells is that he wanted scientists to rule the world. And there's a movie, Things to Come. It's based on a book Wells wrote called The Shape of Things to Come. But this is a major British movie of the 30s. It was produced by the Quarter brothers. William Cameron Menzies was the director. And it not only worked from Wells, but he actually was a consultant on the film. I like to think of it as a film where the Martians win. There's a vast world war, and it destroys everything, and then humanity rebuilds under the leadership of scientists. And these scientists have banded together to form an organization called Wings Over the World. They've monopolized air travel. Only these scientists have planes, and they're able to rule the world from the air. And there's one remaining pocket of a tyrant played by Ralph Richardson in the film, and the head of Wings Over the World is played by Raymond Massey. The scientists use these planes to drop gas and pacify their enemies. The only one who dies is this Ralph Richardson character, and then they go to rebuild the world. Wells always had this vision of something destroying the world, and then he could rebuild it from the ground up, according to his scientific vision. This film, an airborne, scientifically advanced group of people conquer the Earth and rebuild it. That's just War of the Worlds transposed with the Martians winning so that scientists could rule the world and rebuild it according to their plans. It really shows what was going on in Wells' mind. It's a wonderful film one of the great science fiction films of all time. I think Criterion has fairly recently issued a cleaned up version of it. But in a way, it does show you what would happen if science did triumph and triumph universally because it had this technological control
0: of the airways. Yeah, as you pointed out from the beginning, it's hard not to suspect that these people really do have a lot of sympathy with the horrors that power could perpetrate, simply because of what power is. And the alliance of the modern state and scientific power did issue in something like the British Empire's claim that they would be ruling by right, because their power was scientific power. It was a form of knowledge, not just a form of violence. This could end up being applied to the British themselves, though they of course probably would not have liked it. There is a contradiction, therefore, at the core of modern free societies. Our freedom is powered up by technology, but we are aware that technology could turn around and enslave us.
1: Yes, and the British were beginning to get concerned at the end of the 19th century that both Germany and the United States were advancing beyond them economically and in terms of technology, and Wells captured those fears in the notion of an advanced Martian civilization defeating the British. The British had yielded the chemical industry to Germany in the course of the 19th century and that came back to haunt them and the U.S. around 1900 was reaching the stage of the number one economy in the world. Most people don't realize in the 19th century, Britain was the number one economy, had the largest GDP. In the world. So there were a lot of fears at the time in Britain. I mean, they were the world power in the 19th century. The only way to project power in the 19th century was by sea, and they had not only the largest (laughs) navy in the world, but a navy pretty much large enough to defeat any combination of the other navies in the world. But as well as understood, air power would be the key to the 20th century. And that's where eventually Britain, you know, had to yield to the United States and Germany and other advanced forms of technology. So it's quite prophetic on all sorts of different levels. Yeah. And it shows how his mind worked. Just discovering this basic framework of a war between the worlds and then taking it to all these different aspects and levels.
0: Yeah, and of course this is something we live with now. What if the Chinese turn out to develop new powers scientifically and become stronger than America? What are the chances that they'll be friendly? This will never go away. We think technology makes us free, but you're never free to stop developing technology. You have to keep up because if you don't keep up, others will get ahead of you. And whether it's economy or war, they will win and you will lose. And this has haunted every great technological commercial modern republic. It's the Americans turn now as it was the British before. And who knows what will happen next? which is, of course, another point about technology. From the scientific point of view, normal people are just blind. They don't want to face the ugly truth. But if you do face the ugly truth, you have to be working 24 hours a day to develop new technologies. You have to live by a kind of rule of paranoia. Anything that can be developed has to be developed because you don't know ahead of time what the dangers will be or what the opportunities are that you might miss. Right, yeah. Technology turns out to complicate freedom far more than people had originally expected. It's not just doing more with less, which is a nice word for what technology helps you do usually. It just isn't as simple as that because you never have a choice to stop.
1: Yes, and I've seen people argue that ancients like Aristotle understood this, that it's not that they just were ignorant of technological possibility, but they did think it through and realized it it was a bad bargain. Aristotle says in the politics... We wouldn't need slaves if the weaving could weave itself. And and that really is imagining machines that could do the work instead of slaves. And he seems to reject that possibility even though he understands it.
0: Yes, and Aristotle also famously said that arts could be developed indefinitely. There's no craft that has an inherent limiting principle. And of course, we also know that when Socrates, in his apology, his discussion with the city of Athens, talks about the various people who think they know stuff about life, he dismisses the claims of the poets and of the politicians, they're just flatterers. But he does admit that the artisans actually do know what to do in their domains, they don't understand any limits, again, is their problem, they think they can rule the world because they have a specific craft. But they do have knowledge and they can get stuff out of it. There is power there. And there's no inherent limiting principle to it either.
1: Yeah. I mean, that a wonderful passage about Hippodamus in the beginning of Book 2 of the Politics, where he imagines a kind of modern scientist and realizes how inhuman and inhumane he is. He does everything by threes. He's basically trying to impose a mathematical grid on human life. He's a city planner, and he dresses weird. And Aristotle really captures there what's wrong about someone who thinks of human life, not humanistically, but in terms of mathematics. And that kind of person will impose a regime on us that will, in fact, be inhuman and inhumane. So maybe he did foresee a lot more of the future uh, Aristotle, the H.G. Wells of ancient Greece.
0: Right, so that example specifically is order, but bereft of law. That's what mathematics is. It's more certain as knowledge, but there's no law involved, and therefore it's not at all clear that it's tied up to any human good, and it's clear that it's not tied up with consent. Why are philosophers imagining the end of the world before they can take power? Because they know that nobody's going to consent to the rule of Herbert George Wells or any scientific tyrant, aspirational or applied. That used to be considered as a limit anyway. Even if the people are unwise in some circumstances, there's no getting around the people. The issue of consent is constitutional to politics. But what if you could have order without law? Math does not have powers, but modern science does have power. You can install order without any kind of consent, without any kind of law.
1: Yes, and any kind of custom. That's also the point about Hippodamus, for he his contempt for custom he dresses differently, and so is contempt for any of the ways people normally do things. Hey, should we move on here to our next topic? Yeah. Yeah, I was thinking let's get to Orson Welles and this wonderful coincidence that they have the same name.
0: Yeah, let's see how these fears come to America.
1: So, Wells' novel has the distinction that it supposedly created a panic in the United States. And this is on October 30th, 1938. Orson Welles' radio show, The Mercury Theater, chose to dramatize War of the Worlds. It transposed the story to the United States, specifically to New Jersey and New York. And Wells saw how H.G. had succeeded because the geography of War of the Worlds, the novel, is just perfect. It's like the green line on the London tube system. The Martians take the green line coming into central London. And Wells set the story in New Jersey and had the Martians approaching New York, crossing the Hudson River and all that. And the genius of the show was to present it as a real event. That is, we were listening to a music program and I' just playing some dance band and then the music is interrupted by bulletins which begin relatively innocently, some explosions have been seen on the moon and gradually become more and more ominous as the Martians take on the American army and and so on. It turns out not to be the first time that was done, but it's certainly a major event. And the legend is that it created this mass panic in the United States. It turns out a lot of that was manufactured by the news media. In fact, there's a wonderful book on the subject by Brad Schwartz. It's called Broadcast Hysteria, Orson Welles' War of the Worlds and the Art of Fake News. This guy Schwartz really lucked out titling a book in 2015 with the phrase fake news. I bet he's been selling a lot of copies uh, lately. But he actually debunks the legend and sees it as itself a product of media hysteria. And the title makes the point. I mean, for example, nobody was killed. But the stories of people rushing out in the street and being run over by cars, and none of this has been documented. In fact, what Schwartz did is he went into the archive of CBS and read all the letters which they had kept that had been sent to fans. And I believe the letters that praised the broadcast outnumbered the ones that criticized it. And even the ones that criticized it tended to take the form. Not I was panicked by the show, but damn you, my neighbor was panicked. And in fact, it's very interesting to see that the media leaped in with a story immediately that people were gullible and taken in because that's what they wanted to think about it. Now, again, the context is very interesting in trying to understand why the show had so much impact People look at the date, 1938. We were just coming out of the Munich Conference and all the controversy over Germany's attempt to take back the Sudetenland from uh, the newly created Czechoslovakia. The Munich Conference basically gave Hitler Czechoslovakia. And people have pointed out that the American public was getting used to having their radio programs interrupted by ominous news bulletins such as, you know, Chamberlain Caves to Hitler, Munich. And that had all been tied with the suggestion that we were on the brink of World War II. Again, we tend to think of the outbreak of World War II as a complete surprise. The United States associates it with Pearl Harbor and a surprise attack, but that's already in December 41. In fact, throughout the 30s, people were anticipating a World War II. And indeed, it's what drove the policy of appeasement and the surrender to Hitler and Mussolini on a number of issues. So people were getting used to their radio as announcing catastrophic things, perhaps on the scale of a world war. Finally, listen to the broadcast. By the way, it's very easily available on YouTube for free. It's 58 minutes long. It's extremely implausible to listen to it now and think that anyone could have taken this seriously. For one thing, Orson Welles gets on and announces, this is Mercury Theater, we're going to be dramatizing H.G. Wells's War of the Worlds. It is true that there are no normal station breaks, which were, I believe, mandated at 15-minute intervals at that time on radio. It's 38 minutes into the broadcast that there's an interruption, and they explain this is a dramatization. So that might explain why some people took it seriously, but, you know, I'm very good at identifying voices, and how you could not think that half the people on the broadcast are Orson Welles, I can't imagine. It's like not recognizing James Earl Jones's voice. (laughs) Although I confess to my embarrassment, I thought the voice of Arby's that says, we have the was uh, James O'Jones. It turns out it's Vin Diesel. So I'm not utterly infallible in these respects. But I mean, Orson Welles was famous for The Shadow. Who knows what evil lurks in the hearts of men? The Shadow knows. It's the most famous voice on radio at the time. Anyway, I'm just old enough. I was born in 1945 to have listened to dramas on radio as a child. To today's generation or even earlier generations, it must be unimaginable to think that anyone would turn to radio for drama, but we did then. And The Shadow was one of my favorite shows, though Wells was no longer playing Lamont Cranston at that point. But you would think people wouldn't, the, the professor who's always commenting on the Martians is Orson Wells, and so on and so on. And he was one of the great radio actors of the time. But Schwartz does point out that the panic was not among people listening to the show. It was people who just kind of tuned into it. The show up against it on NBC was Edgar Bergen and Charlie McCarthy. The craziest thing in the history of entertainment, a ventriloquist act on radio. (laughs) Uh, If you want to talk about the gullibility of the American people, then people would care to listen to a ventriloquist act on radio anyway. So if you tuned in in the middle of it and were hearing about police have cordoned off Newark and the National Guard is being sent to Grover's Mill, if you just heard that, you might think there's some problem. And indeed, Schwartz documents this, the vast majority of people who in any sense panicked, and by that I mean just called up the police or went out in the street to see what was happening, they were responding not to an invasion from Mars. Very few people thought we were being invaded from Mars. What people heard on the radio was there's some kind of trouble in the middle of New Jersey and there's fires breaking out. You know, that would be enough to give you concern, especially if you lived in New Jersey. But the myth developed that a huge portion of the U.S. population believed that we were being invaded by Martians. And this is interesting from another angle, namely the media contempt for common people. Yep. This fueled a myth that the elite media had that the American people are really gullible. They wanted to believe people could be taken in by something so ridiculous. What Schwartz has documented is they were not taken in, the vast majority were not believing that we'd been invaded by Martians. They just thought they'd heard something was going wrong. And indeed, Schwartz documents that most of the stuff was secondhand, not people who were listening to the show, but people who were called by relatives who were listening to the show to report, you know, if you're planning on going to Grower's Mill, New Jersey tonight, maybe go somewhere else. Because in fact, the show was not highly rated show. Mercury Playhouse, Dorson Wells. they were doing dramatizations of Dickens novels. Uh, you know, everyone was listening to Edgar Burke and Charlie McCarthy <laughs> at that time. And Schwartz wrote this book to debunk this myth. Again, there are stories of you know traffic accidents and people shooting each other, thinking they were Martians that, that somebody shot a water tower in New Jersey, thinking it was one of the Martian tripod war machines. and you know, it was all rumor. And also, the story was a one-week wonder. Front-page news the next day, and of course, there were calls for government investigations, And but it, it really went out of the news pretty quickly because it turned out to be a nothing burger. As we now say, there really was no story there. The short season, it's an example of what a scholar named Rebecca Solnit calls elite panic. The people don't panic, the elite manages to think they'll panic. And this is actually a pre important subject because a great deal of the military thinking behind World War II was based on this notion that people panic easily. That was the idea of civilian bombing. People in Germany, the German, the English, and the American military with Curtis LeMay, they assumed that we could easily bomb a nation into submission. Yeah because people could not stand up to bombing. They would demand that their country surrender. Now, of course, after World War II, we have the story of the heroic London Blitz, the way the British stood up to it. No one wants to talk about heroic the German people were, but they too stood up to even worse bombing. The Japanese didn't surrender took the atomic bombs to make them surrender, turns out that people are more resilient than their governments think they are. This is a book by this woman, again, Rebecca Solnit, called Paradise Built in Hell. It's a wonderful book on a number of incidents like this. It retells the story of the London Blitz. When people were first faced with air raids, they went down to the subways. And you know what? The British government tried to ban that Yep. because they were sure people would kill each other in panic in the subways. Eventually, they realized that wasn't happening in the safest place for people was to be in the subways. And now, the way it's come down to us in memory is the British government came up with this great scheme to protect people in the subways. Absolutely the they were trying to prevent that. Yeah. And it was only the people who figured out how to protect themselves. And again, this would be you know my answer to H. G. Wells. In fact, people are not all that dumb, and they don't panic that easily. You know, Solnit brings up the story of Hurricane Katrina in New Orleans. You know, the initial news reports when they put all those people in the Superdome to protect them was cannibalism. Uh, I don't know if you remember this or were here Uh for that, but of course it was all fake news. It was all rumors and the press trying to sensationalize everything and refusing to face the fact that in most situations, people can take care of themselves. For example, 9-11. It's a wonderful documentary narrated by Tom Hanks about the naval evacuation of the people of the lower tip of Manhattan.
0: Yeah, the Manhattan boat lift. It was a
1: bigger evacuation than Dunkirk. Over 500,000 people were evacuated in the course of a few hours by a flotilla of ships. The call had gone out to Connecticut, New Jersey, and New York. If you've got a boat, please come to lower Manhattan. And not a single person was killed in this dunkirk size evacuation. To be sure, the Coast Guard sent out the calls, but nobody organized it. There a bunch of people, volunteers coming in. So this war of the world subject is really interesting because it raises the concrete question, can people take care of themselves? You know, I'm sure at this evacuation of Lower Manhattan, there were officials saying, you're exceeding the legal limit of people on this size boat. And I'm sure there were people saying, we're getting out of here. We're trying to save her lot. Anyway, yeah, you know, here's where I think Wells and a lot of people get these stories wrong. People don't panic as easily as their government officials would like to think they do, and that's why the whole Orson Welles story is important. Yeah, the degree to which people were panicking, the degree to which people are too stupid to know what to do, it was grossly exaggerated by the newspapers. And by the way, Schwartz makes the point that newspapers at that point were already really resentful. That radio was taking. Way the function of disseminating news from them. And so the newspapers pounced on radio to suggest that radio is an evil force and it's going to distract and confuse the American people. Yeah. The short book is really quite fascinating. Again, it's called Broadcast Hysteria. I really recommend it to people.
0: I'm a graduate of political science and I can tell you that when you're a freshman and you have to take courses in political communication and things like that, it's invariably the case that some professor brings up the case of this Orson Welles broadcast. as examples of the power of propaganda and political communication, how stupid and easily manipulated people are, and that is an elite fantasy that ultimately comes down to sophistry, the opinion that you can rule by speeches, that you can persuade people of anything. Of course, as America moved on from radio to television and advertising, this only increased as an attempt and as a fantasy. To some extent it works, but it doesn't give the kind of power of brainwashing that people fantasize it does.
1: Yes, Schwartz makes that point very well in the book. That people exaggerate the effect and they exaggerate exactly what happened. And again, I brought up the issue of the civilian bombing because it really misled all the participants in World War II to, to overestimate the effect of civilian bombing. Every study now shows civilian bombing increased the will to fight. In Britain, in Germany, in Japan, it just got people angry.
0: But it killed a lot of people. You bombed me? Well. Yeah, it's a catastrophic idea. Idea. Yeah. Well, I think we can move on to the 50s and onwards and War of the Worlds at the movies.
1: Yes, it is interesting that the first movie version of War of the Worlds did not come until 1953. It was a George Powell production, and George Powell was famous for his special effects, and that may be the answer that movies had to reach a certain stage of special effects to do justice to War of the Worlds. I must say one of the factors was, Wells was a socialist in theory, but a capitalist in practice. For The Invisible Man, which Universal Pictures did with Claude Rains in the early 30s, he managed to extract $30,000 from the studio for the rights to the Invisible Man in the middle of the Depression. I feel like Dr. Evil here, speaking of $8 million, but that was a lot of money.
0: Yes, vast sum back then.
1: So Hollywood vowed never to deal with Wells again. So when they made Island of Dr. Roe into a movie, they called it the Island of Lost Souls, so they didn't have to pay him a cent. So that may explain why War of the Worlds didn't appear. But anyway, Powell did a movie in 53, stars Gene Barry, and the special effects are wonderful. They still look pretty good. But the interesting thing there is now like, the context is the Cold War and the effect of the film is to dramatize this insidious enemy invading the United States and the Martians are a standard for the Soviets there. And there are all these little touches. Now the U.S. can try to drop an atomic bomb on the Martians and that doesn't work because they have a force field. And by the way, it's just interesting that in 1898, the Martians would invade Britain. If you wanted to take out the Earth, you took out the greatest power on Earth, and that would be Britain. 1950s, you got to take out the United States. And it again, it's pretty effective in recreating some of the uh, details of Wells' story. But the biggest thing is the shift on religion in it. Now the threat is atheistic communism. So the romantic interest in the film, the leading lady, she is the daughter of a parson. Now, you mentioned how badly the curate is portrayed as a coward and a madman, the Wells novel, but now we have Pastor Collins, and he first bravely tries to make peace with the Martians, but they annihilate him. And then, as things are getting really bad for humanity, Jean Barry has been separated from his girlfriend and knows she would go to church. So he goes from church to church in the great Los Angeles area and finally finds her in one of the churches praying for a miracle. And indeed, the Martians are bombing the church. And at that moment, bacteria kick in and once again, their lack of immunity to earthly bacteria kills them. And it's very much presented as an act of God in this case the Martians have done a godless thing in destroying these churches and so God working his miracles does so through these bacteria and kills off the Martians. So from the impious work of H.G. Wells, we produced a pious
0: modern work uh, George Powell said. Yes, indeed. It's now almost fully domesticated, Americanized as a form of storytelling and as an idea and of course we can jump ahead and talk about the even more American version done by by Steven Spielberg starring Tom Cruise.
1: Yes, that's already 2005 and the key is 2001, September 11th. The film is a reflection of the anxieties produced by 9-11. And it is interesting. There have been a couple of films that tangentially deal with 9-11, but it's kind of surprising that there's never been one big 9-11 film. And I think the reason is that Americans are still not eager to deal with that event and see it represented again. But it is certainly fascinating to realize how many movies have been made since 2001 in which we see urban skylines annihilated. Yes. In fact, virtually every superhero movie now has a scene where skyscrapers in New York or Chicago or San Francisco or whatever are tumbled by something. And again, those are all stand-ins for 9-11. And I think this Spielberg film is a good example of that. One of the odd details in it, it seems to come out of nowhere, is the Martians don't invade. A million years ago, they buried their war machines on Earth. I mean, this is pretty advanced preparation. But instead, they come to Earth and reclaim their war machines. But there aren't what you'd normally expect in these films, the flying saucer flotilla arriving from Mars, discussing this with a couple of people. and We came up with the idea that this is the idea of sleeper cells with terrorists. The new fear was they're here already, these terrorists they're planted, they're ready to go ahead to destroy us. And we just didn't notice it. And I think that is a 9-11 shift in perspective there. There's one prominent scene when Tom Cruise passes a downed Boeing 747. It comes out of nowhere in the film. It's rather gratuitous. And that seems to be one of the many 9-11 references. And the film moves between New York and Boston, so, once again, Wells supplied us with this narrative framework of War of the Worlds, it is able to assimilate all sorts of new material. For Wells, it was the British Empire, for the uh, Orson Welles broadcast, it was the 1930s Troubles in Europe. For the George Powell movie, it was the Cold War. And now this film comes to terms with the anxieties produced by 9-11. And again, it's the sense of inability of the authorities, and specifically the American military, to deal with the problem. Now, it's a Spielberg film, so the single most important thing in the cosmos is, of course, a father's love for Satan. son. Yeah. Uh, that's what the whole film turns out. Forget about the American economy. Forget about world balance of power. What's really lousy about these Martians is they've separated a father from the son. Uh, the whole f- the film deals with a broken family. Tom Cruise is divorced from his wife. He has the kids for a weekend. And damn it if the Martians don't show up. It's his weekend with the kids. And for Steven Spielberg, there's nothing more horrible in the universe than divorce. <laughs> So the whole thing deals with Will the Martians get away from ruining Tom Cruise's custody weekend. And that can't happen. He fights his way back to Boston. He loses the kid along the way. But And it is interesting. I was looking this up. One of the people who worked on the film said that the kid runs off to join the army fighting the Martians. And one of the men making the film said, yeah, I had in mind these terrorist situations in the Middle East where these little kids joined the terrorists. Again, there was enormous anxiety in the United States still is, about terrorists. And this film, again, operating indirectly, metaphorically, allegorically, manages to embody those anxieties, and particularly the way they have an impact on ordinary family life. Certainly, yeah. you know, since nine eleven, that whole situation has been exacerbated. Spielberg weakens the power of the story by, in effect, reducing it to anxieties about the nuclear family. Still, it's interesting to see when you probe these films, what they're getting at, what problems they're dealing with, what sort of fears and worries they tend to encapsulate. And again, without in any way being directly about 9-11, the scenes of carnage and catastrophe in New York City, a down plane, you can see what was on the minds of the people who made the film.
0: Yeah, and why it was popular? It's just the case that 9/11 taught Americans to fear again, and this showed up in pop culture in any number of places. And it also meant that the story became fully Americanized, precisely because the protagonist in this case is not some kind of scientist, superhuman guy. It's uh, down on his luck, every man. He's a guy who works at the lower levels of industrial America, and he's got troubles with his kids. Yeah, it was a
1: peculiar role for Tom
0: Cruise. (laughs) It's a weird idea, but it's supposed to suggest that he's an everyman, working class American, and he's trying to play baseball with his kid in the back of the house. It's pretty bad in terms of cliches, but you can see what it's getting at. The story has to be fully Americanized. The problem is that there is nothing in between great sources of danger and everyday Americans. Civilians have become privately vulnerable.
1: Yes, that whole sense, it can't happen here. Exactly. And it suddenly did happen and it was unimaginable. It's actually funny when everyone was calling it unimaginable, the X-Files had had an episode six months earlier on their spinoff, The Lone Gunmen, about terrorists who tried to crash a plane into the World Trade Center. The FBI was interviewing Chris Carter and Vince Gilligan and all the people that wrote on the show and they had just thought it up so it wasn't unimaginable to them.
0: Yeah, there were a couple of 90s stories that thought about massive terrorism in urban areas in America but they were rare and they weren't taken seriously of course. Not even the first attack on the World Trade Center seems to have led to seriousness about the subject. But it did change the national mood and it made people serious in a way that they hadn't been before. That also brings out the weakness in the movie. If you Americanize War of the Worlds enough, if you don't have any kind of sympathy for the alien destructive force like Wells did, then you run into this problem. Well, What are these aliens? Who are we afraid of? We know who we are, we're the working class, family-loving Americans, but who are we against or who's against us? We don't know. We're not going to talk about that. And as you put it, there's no real work of art about 9-11, even going on 20 years now afterwards. There's a kind of conspiracy of silence on the subject that shows you what limits there are to storytelling. War of the Worlds was a Spielberg movie, it was a success, it was fairly well reviewed but it also disappeared fairly quickly and it didn't have any kind of posterity precisely because it has become impossible for cultural and political reasons to speak about aliens as enemies or what the enemy might be. That's one avenue of the alien invasion and the kind of dead end it seems to me, but of course there are other avenues We can also talk about Mars Attacks, the great Tim Burton blockbuster and its predecessors in the 50s, flying saucers, aliens, invasions.
1: Yes, I'm glad you brought up Mars Attacks. Uh, I love Tim Burton and I feel that film is grossly underrated. People just didn't know what he was trying to do there, but he was having fun. I mean, he's always working within pop culture genres, but as someone who's very intelligent about them and plays with them. In this case, he was very aware of the ideological force of the 1950s alien invasion stories. He said that he mainly had in mind a really cheesy flying saucer movie called Earth vs. the Flying Saucers, And that's kind of an epitome of the spirit of these 50s War of the Worlds-type movies, as with the George Powell 1953 film. It's another one of these stories where flying saucers start showing up. But it really is a film, this is Earth vs. Flying Saucers, that celebrates the unity of the military and the Washington elite and scientists. And ordinary people are completely baffled by them, respond irrationally, They run in panic, but usually towards the flying saucer and get eliminated by the heat ray. A local cop will be a subject of ridicule because he'll drive up in a motorcycle and point his six-shooter at the flying saucer and think he can stop it. And of course, he's obliterated by the heat ray, and it basically is another one of these stories that shows that ordinary human beings are incapable of defending themselves or organizing themselves or saving themselves. And who comes to the rescue, a combination of the federal government, the military, and scientists. Within the days, they huddle and come up with this great weapon to defeat the flying saucers. It's a mirror of the Manhattan Project and the very prevalent idea in the 50s that the U.S. had won World War II single-handedly by inventing the atomic bomb. When I went to school in the 50s, I was never told that the Russians had fought (laughs) (laughs) in World War II, that maybe they'd had a slight role in the defeat of Hitler. And I'm not kidding about that, because it was the Cold War, and we weren't giving them any credit. And so this Earth versus the Flying Saucer is a kind of mini version of the Manhattan Project. Don't worry, the federal government will solve the problem and kill the Martians. Well, Burton, uh, he had an English screenplay writer. They had a field day with this. And quite honestly, this is a 1996 film. It is fascinating to go back on it and see how it predicts the contemporary red state versus blue state politics weird way predicts the whole Donald Trump story, that is. In the film, the elites are portrayed very negatively. You have Jack Nicholson playing the president. You have uh, Sarah Jessica Parker playing a newswoman. You have scientists in the film, and they're all absolutely helpless dealing with the Martians. There's one scene where you know they're always trying to create peace with the Martians. They invite the Martians to address the House and the Senate and the Martians use the occasion just to kill everybody in the House and Senate. And you see all these prestigious people who claim to be able to run the country and save the country operating in D.C. They accomplish nothing. The other center of the film is the all-American city of Las Vegas, presided over by Jack Nicholson in a dual role he plays a kind of Donald Trump character. He's a hotel owner in Las Vegas, close to a hotel owner in Atlantic City. And the human race is saved by a consortium of, uh, I'll use the word, trailer trash. These very ordinary people, Jim Brown's in it. He plays a guy boxer who's a greeter in a Las Vegas hotel you got all these people who are totally lower class and uneducated and they finally defeat the Martians and not with a nuclear reactor and not with a thermonuclear device, but with the voice of Slim Whitman. Now, Slim Whitman was a yodeling country and western star who pioneered the late night TV commercial. Again, I may be dating myself here by saying back in those days, if you were watching Letterman or Leno or whatever, you know, at 1 a.m. there's a commercial for Slim Whitman's yodeling uh, CDs, and it turns out he's so high-pitched that he shatters Martian brains. And so the way the human race is saved is when this ragtag group of uh, Los Vegas just trailer trash observe a Martian killed by Slim Whitman's yodeling and they get in a truck and get an amplifier and start driving around the city and killing all the Martians and the word gets out around the world. And it's just such a marvelous allegory that the blue state people just stand around preening themselves on their elite status and accomplish nothing. And the red state people who are down to earth and have to grapple with these things on a local level, they managed to save the day. It's hard to believe this thing was ever made, especially not in 1996. But again, it's a marvelous use of this genre, this war of the world genre, to make a political point and a fairly sophisticated one, I think, especially in retrospect. Uh, the film has virtually disappeared. It's occasionally shown on late night television. It's very, very funny. But again, I mean, I remember being disappointed with it initially. It took me a long time to figure out what was going on in it. And it really was a celebration of rural America and a celebration of flyover country. This is one moment in a trailer. Is it Randy Quaid? I mean, he always played those parts. It's
0: Joe Don Baker.
1: Oh, yes. That's Joe Don Baker. That's right. Well, you know, uh, I'd like to see that Martian come and try to take my TV. And that's wonderful. You know, there's a kind of uh, malicious spirit to it. Americans Know How to Organize. I wrote an essay on it where I compared it to the spirit of Alexis de Tocqueville and his celebration of American self-association, the way Americans can organize themselves to solve their problems. And that was the great thing about this film. I highly recommend it.
0: Yeah, it's Tim Burton's subtlest movie, actually, because he never tips his comic hand. He simply presents to you the story and, of course, this was the 90s, the Clinton years, where every movie that had the president had the heroic, young, sexy president patterned after Bill Clinton. Michael Douglas did it, Kevin Kline did it, a bunch of them did it, and, of course, even the avuncular Martin Sheen on the TV show. So nobody wanted to see this version of the elites of the media and politics and in a way this is a great way to wrap our conversation because at this point media does enter into the war of the world's picture and tim burton is merciless in his criticism of the media suggesting that the trashy entertainment media and the highbrow political news media are in bed and they're selling the same kind of shtick and they're all in it for the celebrity and they think that they have a kind of right to stand in between the people and politics and they can kind of puppet the people around. And you can see why. Because all the politicians seem to be obsessed with the media too and they want nothing better than to be celebrities and there absolutely no political responsibilities. It's amazing how critical it is of all these elite institutions.
1: Yeah, that's right. Because Martin Sheen plays a kind of presidential press agent and the politicians are all looking for photo ops. Let me be photographed with a Martian, and then the Martian destroys them. And Pierce Brosnan plays the elite scientist in it, and he's just incredibly vain and obsessed with his good looks. Yeah, it's really quite fully worked out. That's what I like about it. Now, right, it throws media into the equation. It's not just the military and the scientists and the politicians, but the media are very much in codes creating a world which is all one of celebrity and photo ops, not one of any genuine politics. Every move with regard to the aliens is considered in terms of how it will play over with the voting public, not whether it's the right thing to do or not.
0: Yup, compared to that, of course, even these people who literally live in trailers, whose lives are miserable, are better, not necessarily for intellectual reasons, but certainly for moral reasons, since they do seem to have loyalties of family, and they actually do believe, as you pointed out in their somewhat childish, unnerving way, in patriotism. That part of the story doesn't work out so well for them, but it seems to be honest. These people may be gullible, but they're not wicked in the way the elites are. And it turns out that this kid who's a nobody and his grandma in a retirement home end up helping save the human race. And of course, they are decorated implausibly with the Congressional Medal of Honor.
1: Yes. And I just remember Tom Jones is in the movie, playing himself, and Tom Jones is the epitome of lowbrow entertainment. No one would think of inviting him to the White House to perform form for the ambassador from France or something. But he gets right in there fighting the aliens. It's so well calculated in that sense, right down to the casting. Yes. So perfect. There's one point where Jim Brown playing a sort of Muhammad Ali figure. He punches out one of the Martians. So it really doesn't get any better than that. I actually think it's one of his best movies.
0: Yeah, it's unfortunately unappreciated and it doesn't make the kinds of points or does it in the kind of way that is calculated to be appreciated by critics, however. And the audience didn't quite rise to the occasion, that's the funny thing about it, that this is Tim Burton's love letter to the great American audience. They never wrote him back. (laughs)
1: And to popular culture itself, it shows such awareness of a movie tradition, of the various tropes and motifs of alien invasion movies. And, of course, it's popular culture that saves humanity because it's a combination of a washed-up boxer, Tom Jones, and Slim Whitman. That's America for you. That is (laughs) middle America, even though I know Tom Jones is Welsh. Yeah. So a uh, really absolutely brilliant movie. And of course, it had the problem it came out after Independence Day, which was another alien invasion war, the world's film, which although it does to some extent celebrate common people, that's the one that Randy Quaid is. And that's why I'm getting them confused. Yes. But again, it's the military, political, scientific elite that saves the human race. It's Jeff Goldblum. He gives the aliens a computer virus, and that destroys their spaceship. That is a marvelous variant on the H.G. Wells motif of what destroys the Martians, a computer virus rather than ordinary bacteria. But that film was in a way a throwback to the fifties ideology and it was a huge success and Burton's film came out I think six months later. It looked like a comment on Independence Day, even though Burton knew nothing about Independence Day being produced, though it's interesting because Burton was working off films from the fifties that Independence Day was copying. It looked like he was criticizing Independence Day, which he was not, though in effect he was just given yeah. the roots of that
0: film, unfortunately, the people went with the very Zacharine version.
1: That's an interesting aspect of the timing.
0: And in a way, I guess the truth is that the people might love their elites more than people like Tim Burton, who are on the side of the people. That's a sad fact of life. So Independence Day was a big hit made lots of money, yet again, middle-aged white uh, president turns out to be both super patriotic on TV and very sexy, but people loved it, and Mars Attacks was swallowed up in its wake, but it's a far better movie, it is, as you said, prophetic about the conflicts in American politics and culture. It is constantly pointing both in terms of geography and in terms of social class to the class contempt around which American culture is now organized, and it deserves a new audience, and thank God now you can find the movie very easily and laugh for a couple of hours.
1: Yes, it's very, very funny. I know Tim Burton has always embraced Hollywood whereas many of the famous directors are always running from Hollywood and trying to distance themselves from commercial film and I'm so much better. Tim Burton grew up in Burbank. Uh, I mean, he absorbed the whole culture of cinema. He makes very intelligent films and always creates variants on a tradition. I mean, his rethinking of Batman uh, was, I think, more fundamental than Christopher Nolan's, for example. But anyway, I think that's made it hard for a lot of intellectuals to embrace him. He's always sided with outsiders, people who don't fit into the mainstream. This would include Pee Wee Herman and Edward Scissorhands and Beetlejuice. So many of his movies deal with the peculiar relation between the outside and the inside. He works within Hollywood genres and Hollywood traditions, but always with a outsider look on them. I think it's what makes him one of the great filmmakers of our era his first four or five films were one of the great runs of movies by any creator. It reminds me of H.G. Wells' first four or five novels. Rarely is anyone so successful in sequence and not simply by repeating a formula. Tim Burton didn't do Pee-wee, Son of Pee-wee, Bride of Pee-wee, <laughs> Curse of Pee- Pee-wee. You yeah, know, he moved on to Beetlejuice. Yeah. And the same way with Wells, he didn't do Time Machine. The Time Machine comes back. <laughs> There's a continuity to his scientific romances, but it's just an amazing sequence. Time Machine, Invisible Man, Doc Moreau, War of the Worlds. And I hope you'll have me back someday and we can discuss some of the other Wells novels in relation
0: to film history. Yeah, of course, we should do more of these things. There's so much that we can point to and notice about changes in society and in thinking about art. And Tim Burton is an unusual guy because he's so obviously middle-brow, but he also has a very strange sensibility that would qualify him as an indie filmmaker. But he does make movies that are all-American, that try to make sense of freedom in a somewhat romantic way, but in an all-American way. And unfortunately, he just hates glamour. And so he was never that loved. He was never impressive enough because people worship glamour more than they do this kind of unusual talent. Well, so we should do Tim
1: Burton one day. He's one of my favorites.
0: we got lots of things to do. Yeah, we could do a podcast about his career. He's certainly in need of a new audience and this is a very good time for it. It is possible now to do this, to curate and for people to watch these things again and to see with eyes that are no longer clouded by the stupidities of the celebrity worship that is the press. People can watch the movies and see if they love them.
1: Yeah. By the way, if I get one plug in here, I discuss a lot of these issues in my book, The Invisible Hand in Popular Culture, Liberty vs. Authority in an American film and TV. Got a whole chapter
0: on Mars Attacks. Yeah, I think that was my favorite chapter in the book. We'll have to put up some links when we put up the podcast and point people to this. I especially recommend the chapter on Mars Attacks. First time I read somebody who got the movie and loved it as it deserves. It changed the way I thought about it. Everybody should go get that book and read it. I second that
1: emotion. <laughs> you know, again, there's an excellent chapter on the X-Files of 9-11. I wrote a whole chapter on the reaction to 9-11 in popular culture, which was much more complex than people understood at the time. Because I'm interested in this sort of thing, I started collecting articles in TVI, and it was absolutely fascinating to go back years later and see, in a sense, how accurate some people's statements were, but how inaccurate others were. It's really funny that one of the big claims at the time was 9-11 was going to permanently alter American popular culture, and we were going to go back to John Wayne movies. Yep. Yep. And that happened for maybe a week.
0: Very good point. (laughs) And then that was that. Yeah, there's no going back, it would seem. And the discussion you have of what it means to be an alien and how popular culture discusses aliens in that chapter is very interesting and I wholeheartedly recommend it.
1: Well, thank you. I discuss all sorts of things like fringe and the event and V and invasion. All sorts of forgotten TV shows of the second decade of the 21st century, and how soon they are forgotten.
0: Yeah, that's what struck me, that a bunch of the shows that came out that year in 2006, was it? They just disappeared before the season was over, but they are part of this cultural anthropology. You get to see what storytellers were trying out on audiences, and what the ideas running around Americans' heads at the time were. Yeah.
1: I mean, that is the great advantage of studying popular culture. I mean, you mentioned, you know, Socrates went around Athens interviewing the poets because he thought that was the place to begin to understand the horizon of people's thinking in Athens. And today, I think he'd be looking at television and movies and uh, trying to infer from popular culture what are the basic ways of thinking uh, of the people involved. And again, you would see them very often reacting to central events. uh, And give popular culture credit that it often is reacting in complex ways. I mean, H.G. Wells was an exceedingly popular author. He was searching for as big an audience as possible, and yet it didn't inhibit him from looking at different sides of questions and really coming up with thoughtful approaches, even when I disagree with him. And I often disagree with him in his view of humanity, because again, I think he libels humanity, but you can certainly clarify issues by seeing how he dealt with them.
0: Yes, indeed. And I hope we have pointed out that there's a lot of staying power to these ideas since he was one of the early people in literature to confront fundamental questions in our society.
1: Yes, and it's no accident that he's the founder of science fiction because he was one of the first to confront the impact of science on humanity and how it was going to change the human condition. Jules Verne was a little earlier. I happen to be teaching Jules Verne in one of my courses at the moment, and increasingly I've come to understand that Around the World in 80 Days and 20,000 Leagues Beneath the Seas uh, really predicted our modern globalized world. Yes, indeed. And how it would mark a fundamental transformation in the human condition. Maybe we can talk about Jules Verne, another guy who had lots of movies made out of his books. Yeah. I sometimes tell my students, you know, go down the reading list. I have a course on Fiction of Empire and I say there's not a single one of these 14 books that has been made into a movie. Yep. And most of my colleagues would hold that against the book. <laughs> but I say that no, it shows somehow that they touched a responsive chord and in many cases like with Wells and Verne or Kipling or Ryder Haggard 10 movies have been made from the same book. Yes indeed. Frankenstein's another example. There's a number of 19th century authors who essentially gained the 20th century the narrative framework with which to understand its fundamental issues. Quite remarkable, when you go through the list, it would include Bram Stoker's Dracula, Arthur Conan Doyle's Sherlock Holmes stories. Many of these things are creations of the late 19th century. They reflect the profound anxieties of the time about how technology was changing the world, and how the world's map was being reshaped, and they carry over into 20th century popular culture. They are still the source of an an enormous percentage of our popular culture formulations. And these authors are actually quite important. They created the imaginative framework for the 20th century. Many of them are scorned because they were so popular, and maybe they don't write with such a subtle a point of view as Henry James. Yeah, But uh, I think they meant a lot more to the mass of people, and again, I give credit to the taste of the public. It's not as debased as many elite intellectuals think it is. That's one reason I've embraced popular culture in my
0: own work. Yeah, it's worth noting that if you go look back 100, 200 years, it is often the popular stuff that raises the fundamental questions about civilization, about an artificial world, about technology, about new conventions, moral progress or regress. It's where these questions come up, and uh, they do have a certain staying power precisely because this problem of the modern commercial republic that bases itself on technology is still there, and it's unavoidable, and people should be trying to understand it rather than going around it. Well, sir, thank you for another exhaustive conversation, or perhaps nothing quite comprehensive, but we've gone through a lot of stuff in the long historical period, including but not restricted to the 20th century. I hope that this gives people a sense of the sweep of these stories and what it is that audiences and artists find in them. And it encourages people to go read this book, The Invisible Hand in Popular Culture.
1: Yes, so uh, again, I thank you for giving me the opportunity and for leading me in these exhaustive, and I might add exhausting
0: directions. <laughs> <laughs> uh it's always a pleasure sir and let's do some more of this sometime soon okay sounds great all the best.